0: this is champagne problems where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking this is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol Hello, everybody. This is part two of our conversation with William Burleson. After hearing William's harrowing story of addiction and mental illness at such a young age, we took the time to unpack his experience. After hearing this segment of the conversation, our hope is that we all are more capable of recognizing the signs and asking for help. As a trigger warning for this episode, we will be discussing suicidal ideation, addiction, and other sensitive subjects. If you or a loved one are experiencing suicidal thoughts, please do not hesitate to reach out to the new Suicide Hotline 988.
1: We pull up our driveway, which is really steep, and I'm showing my mom all my favorite songs. Because it's interesting, the suicidal brain still has a base level of interest. And for me, it was music. Um, And I was showing my mom my favorite song, Cyclones by Sticky Fingers, if you want to listen at home. Um, That's the song I showed her. And at the end of the... At the end of the song, he goes, We're cyclones, and it closes out. And I hadn't cried in months. I just yeah. did not cry. It became incapable for me to cry. I could not show emotion because I was so numb to the fact that I even existed. And I look at her. I go, Mom, I need to help people. This has to mean something. This was before I was at Why?" Hmm. And that was the part of me that knew that I was gonna live past December and past all the months after that. And yes, I battled through both sides at Hopeway, but having that spark of helping people then before I went to Hopeway is really what led me through the whole time. And she looked at me and started crying and said, you will, baby, you will. And that was kind of the moment, I that I was gonna stick around. And then with that, Went back to high school, best friends in the entire world, best administration in the entire world. Shout out, Charlotte Latin school, absolute superheroes with putting me back in school and supporting me. Wow. Um, and then about a week after I was gone, I said, okay, I know I need to help people. I don't know how. I had this English teacher that I had junior year, who was one of the people... And some a senior year who always knew that something was up. Because there were teachers that knew something was up the whole time. Yeah. And I go to her. I'm like, okay, I think I need to write about this. Like, I think I need to write about this story. I just don't know how. She goes, well, just try. Like, write the first chapter, essentially, of your story. Mm -hmm. So I write it, and I show it to her. And she says, William, I think this is it. Like, I think this is going to save a life. And one life is all it takes to do something like this. (laughs)
2: When you got back to school, when you got out of Hopeway and you got back to school, how how did you reintegrate mm-hmm. kind of back into your
1: friend group? Right. So my first week at Hopeway, my mom dropped off a package. And I did count, because why not? 72 letters from friends expressing their support. And that takes us back to Blue in Davidson Behavioral Center. Um, that girl I met who was crying. We had a few conversations. She told me we left on the same day. And she asked, where are you going? I'm going home, and then I'm going to go to Hopeway Place. And she goes, this is a week before Christmas, two weeks before Christmas. And she goes, yeah, my mom kicked me out of the house, so I'm going to go live in a motel for a little bit until I can find out what to do, Mm -hmm. straight from Davidson Behavioral Center. So I think it's very important to recognize how blessed and lucky I am to have such an amazing support system, amazing friends, because not everyone's that lucky. No. no. Not everyone's, and it hurts me to know that. Um, and it's hard to think about, to think I had the best support system possible. And with that, I felt an obligation to, okay, if I have this, I'm going to write about it because I can, because not everyone else can. Not everyone else has the ability to call friends to check up on them. Um, so I did feel this sense of I need to use essentially my privilege for good in the circumstance, and just thinking about Blue, it's like going to a motel two weeks before Christmas. That really set things into perspective for me. Yeah. Um, of I can I cannot take my life for granted because I have it better than other people do and mm-hmm. it's in hard to find system. that gratitude but it, it's very hard to find that gratitude because when you want to die it's very easy to think the world is against me my life is the worst mm-hmm. yeah and when you're able to scope out and essentially say think about how many people care for me that's when the healing really begins and that's when you start healing for yourself um but yeah
2: yeah i got i, I had the, kind of the, a similar experience when i was in treatment in regards to getting letters i had one um one lady that w- worked with my family for 30 years that sent me a sent me a card yeah every single day right. when I was in treatment for three months. That's cool, man. That's nice. I didn't cool. get any. Limits. I mean, it, it was so <laughs> it was like, I mean, that kept me going on yeah some days. Yeah, yeah. Because there's
1: days in there.
2: Yeah. Were you in touch with any of your buddies when you were when nah. you were in Hope Way at all?
1: Um. And hopefully you have the option to take your phone and stay connected to the outside world. Um, But I decided not to. Good choice. just decided to take time, be... Wise decision. And try to be me. Um, Because I hadn't been myself. I'd essentially been playing a role for everybody else. Um, I think at the peak of my depression, I was holding up this mask. I was holding up this shield of who I was supposed to be and who people expected me to be. And my arms gave out. I couldn't hold up the mask anymore. And I think I was scared to drop that mask of William's this type of guy, William is him, because I was afraid to reveal what was underneath of someone who likes writing and someone who likes talking about the stuff. Um, I was really nervous that it wasn't going to be accepted almost. Um, I played a role so long that I convinced myself that's who I was. And when I finally dropped that mask, that's when the healing started again
2: tell us a little bit more about where you are right now in terms of your mental health journey. Like
0: what, what are you, what are you doing to make sure that you're staying on the path? Yeah, having, having this been so recent, I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking eight months ago, yeah. you know, this is the are you're, you're still in it. Yeah. I am. You know? So yeah. So where are you? Yeah.
1: Um, I was very lucky to get my medication really dialed in at Hopeway. Oh, hell yeah. Um, which was huge. Yeah, um, I meditate for an hour every day. Good um, for you, man. Just doing it's very easy if you want to do it at home. Just in out, it's all it takes for breath work. Um, I do that for an hour when I wake up in the morning. Um, take my meds. I have therapy um, once a week. I journal is the biggest thing. Nice. I try to do... I actually type out my journaling. I used to write it, but now I try to get a thousand words of whatever the hell happened that day. <laughs> your um, feathered pen and yeah, your papyrus. My feathers, yes. <laughs> um, so I do a thousand <laughs> words every day of where I'm at, and I try to be as honest as I possibly can. Sometimes I'm more honest on the page than I am in my own mind, yeah. um, which really helps me see yeah. what's really going on. Um, journaling, meditating, medication have really been things that have helped me through this journey it's interesting my alcohol stuff spring break jamaica <laughs> 2022 <laughs> mm-hmm. senior year spring break short latin all the parents mm-hmm. all the kids go i mean there's a booze cruise every day and i went and didn't drink a drop and it was i say this cautionally but i didn't have that much mental torment about not drinking but i still didn't want to just because yeah. i know it can be such an easy escape for me um and I don't feel like escaping right now because I like where I am.
0: You know, I keep, I have that visual of you night hawking the beer pong yeah, table. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think keep that's that in an mind. important visual. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I stay
1: close to that. Yes. Good.
2: How has your friend group and, and, you know, your support system yeah. supported that aspect of your right.
1: recovery? Um, so when I got out, I told my buddies I wasn't going to drink anymore. Um, after the initial wave of like,
0: huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a, f- what are we going to do? Which is, which is a total <laughs>
1: fair thing to have. <laughs> I actually had a, two friends say, all right, we're not going to drink for a month either. Like, Dude, that's it, the best. Your first month is probably going to be the most difficult, which just the way it is. And we're just going to do it with you. So I had two friends. Dude, I, l- I had one friend do that. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Be slightly uncomfortable at parties for a month and then get used to it. You know, it's, yeah. it, was a blessing again and just one of those things my friends and my family i owe a lot of this to because i could not have done it without mm-hmm.
2: them with you kind of shifting into this space of of meaning and wanting to use your experience mm-hmm. to help others um, i think we have a lot of meat here um, to talk about mm-hmm. in terms of you being a you know a recently graduated high school student mm-hmm. moving on to your next phase of education in college offered and you know I would love for you to share some kind of like nuggets or maybe some preventative tactics or mm-hmm. things like if you could look back on your journey. Mm-hmm. Um, from like a parental perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or or I mean, I, I think it's I think there's a lot of value in both looking at this from an eighteen year old kid, but also looking at it from a parent's lens now right. that you have a little bit of experience yeah. and understanding and maturity. Um I think you can probably speak on both sides yeah, of yeah. that. And and I'd love for you to share with our listeners, you know, what you think you may have done differently. That could have prevented some of your suffering right. or or things that you know parents need to look out for yeah
1: things to look out for red flags so if I were a parent listening to this and just heard that story and I had a kid in freshman sophomore year I'd probably be really scared and mm-hmm. if you st- have some beers and you dress up in scrubs you might go down this path <laughs> and I want to preface that that's not necessarily the case <laughs> and from a high school lens of someone who's been around high school kids, it is the strict parents who have the kids that drink and drive home.
2: Mm. Because they don't want to... What do you mean to
1: elaborate? So, if if you're honest with your parents, say, yeah, I might have a few beers tonight, right? You can either accept that you're going to Uber home or they can come pick you up. It is the kids whose parents who say you can never drink until you're 21 who have... Four or five beers and then drive home because they don't want their parents to know it is impossible to go up against the the drinking giant of high school culture Mm. you are not going to beat it you are not going to if your kid is one of those kids in that group you are not going to be able to stop them from drinking because they will find a way the only way you can help them is to talk about where it gets dangerous and where it turns from having fun at a party to an escape um And teaching them to be consciously aware of where that shift can happen of if you ever feel like on the Tuesday you're craving it Saturday, maybe that's something to talk about. I wished on those Tuesdays, because I would only drink on the weekends, I wished I'd been like asked for help at that point.
2: Let's go a little bit further with that. Like, and and I know this is going to be hypothetical because this didn't happen and probably never does. But like, what would you, looking back on this from like a parental lens, what do you think like your mom mm-hmm. could have said to you if if that conversation did occur where where yeah. where where your parents did have the conversation and and it was hey you know if you ever think about drinking on a tuesday yeah. come talk to me right do you think there's anything that a parent could say or there's any direction that that conversation could go that
1: would have been meaningful to you um my parents had those conversations with me, of yeah. like, and they checked in on me. They were like, you don't seem like yourself. Are you okay? And yeah. I just lied to them. Um, the biggest battle you're going to have as a parent is your kid lying to you about stuff. Yeah. So this shifts away from drinking stuff and turns into a trust thing between you and your parents. Because mm-hmm. if you can trust them in another aspect of your life, if there's a, trust, if there's a healthy, good relationship of trust between parents, that's going to shift over to alcohol. If I trust you to tell me I got a speeding ticket, then you can trust me to talk about yeah, drinking. Or a D on your <laughs> yeah. biology yeah. The, yeah. the truthful conversations have to originate before you talk about drinking. Right. That's the end game. of. That's the pinnacle. of. You can talk to me about drinking if you talk to me about the other stuff. I think some parents make the mistake of only craving honesty when it comes to substance. Huh. But you have to crave honesty in the other aspects of their life, or else they're not going to give it to you.
0: Right. Well, and it's it, craving is one thing, but just creating w- a craving, culture. Craving. Yes, yes. You know, creating a setting in your in your household that not only demands it but makes it normal. Yeah. And right.
1: Yes. Exactly.
0: And it's hard to do. I mean, we've we've had multiple episodes on you know how do you communicate with your kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, this question comes up right. all the time. Every parent wants to know, and it typically boils down to exactly what you're saying. It's it's. It starts way before, it starts with setting the example, yes. living by your own, you know, right. preachings. Yes. Yeah. So it's all those things. Mm-hmm. And it
2: starts way before high school. Yes. It's like, definitely. you know, it's, I think it's hard for parents to identify when the appropriate time is to mm-hmm. start having like honest, more mature conversations with their kids. Yes. Where agreed. they can open up about their own experience, their own struggles without overwhelming their children.
1: hmm I think the only reason I lied to my parents about drinking because I'm honest with them about everything else is because I d- know I did have... It was my only escape. Mm-hmm. I had to lie. It got to the point where I had to lie or else I wasn't going to have anything else yeah. left. Yeah. But my parents did cultivate a energy of honesty. It was just it got to the point for me where it felt on, almost incapable for me to be honest about that. Right. Um, and that comes... That's my fault, right? It's... Me getting to the point where I had to lie is ultimately up to me, because I let it get essentially to that point. But if you could have those conversations before it gets to that point, and your right. kid doesn't feel like they have to lie, yeah. that's when the truthful conversations really happen.
0: If I went to my parents and said, hey, I had three beers tonight, mm-hmm. they'd be fine with that. But mm-hmm. if I actually told them the truth, right. that I drank 16 beers yeah. tonight and drove home... right? Yeah, I'm you're going to rehab. I'm yeah. not telling them that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we uh, wrap this conversation up, um, let's leave our listeners with you know some things to to not only think about, some, but some maybe some action items. Um, obviously, this this episode is is geared towards parents and adolescents, uh, with the adolescents about to go back to school, college, uh, specifically. Um, and part of your story, you know you had some friends you know kind of have an intervention of sorts with you. Um, I think it would be very valuable for our listeners to hear some things that um, we they could look out for I know we've touched on a little bit of, of this but but some of the the signs, right. um, you, you know I know you said when, when kids are kind of thinking about it on a Tuesday, but but maybe more so some personality changes, mm-hmm. um, some things to look for and then exa- and then things to say mm-hmm. you know when your par- when your friends mentioned something to you, and I'm sure your parents said something things to you yeah. over the course of this time, and a lot of it was around you've changed. Mm-hmm. you know what does that look like what, yeah, what do you think would be the, the the more effective way of bringing things up to a young? person who's struggling
1: so yeah like you said i mentioned the intervention before and i told y'all at the time i kind of gave him the double middle finger in my head right um and if you asked me right after that conversation i would say that was nothing that made everything even worse Mm -hmm. flashback to hope we're doing an exercise or i think about the people that planted you to get better that planted the seed that have inspired you to be here and not dead And I thought back to that conversation, and that's when it hit me. That's when everything they said hit me. So, Hmm. almost a warning of if you intervene with someone, and I'll get to when you should, if they reject it and don't accept it, know that they will eventually. It it doesn't mean it didn't work. (laughs) It does not mean it it might have not felt like it worked in the moment. Sure. But in a few months, in a few years, it will work, and it's going to hit them, and it's going to contribute to saving their life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Back to What you can say. I mean, they said everything right. Um, What to look out for. For me, when I would ask people to hang out, I would always include that we can drink. Right? Like, I'd be like, let's hang out and drink beer. When most of my other friends would just say, let's hang out. Let's hang out. But my plans were centered around (laughs) alcohol. And I think when you notice people, the individuals wanting to drink when drinking is really not appropriate, um might be a Fifth Amendment thing, self-incrimination, but I would always drink before the Charlotte football games. Um No way. Right? <laughs> <Jesus> <laughs> <William>. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Off the rails. <laughs> anyway, that was a known risky thing to do. Like, that was a stupid thing to do and I still did it. It is the people that to look out for is when you're drinking when it is stupid. Yeah. When you're drinking when you don't have to. When you're drinking just to drink. Um, When you see those patterns of like, why do you want to go to a night's game and black out? Like, we can just go to the night's game. You know what I mean? Yeah. The when drinking becomes a pair with doing any activity, and I think you can see that in your friends pretty Mm -hmm. easily. Um, (laughs) You say, "Yeah, let's go hang out, sit on the porch," and then person one cracks open a beer. Dude, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. It's the odd times with drinking because it's going to be very difficult. To approach someone and look out for these signs when you're drunk and I think that's a lot when the observer because a lot of my friends were drunk when I was drunk and it was difficult for them to see the signs I think I use that to my yeah. advantage it's impossible for you to tell that I'm drinking too much because you're drinking too hmm when they were actually able to see my issues was when they weren't drinking and when I was were, right mm-hmm. so it's all when you see someone drinking when no one else is at inappropriate times at times when it's foolish and stupid and get you kicked out of school, things like that are the real clear warning signs. Um, for me, I was told that I had less energy. Um, I don't know if that was from drinking or the depression, um, yeah. probably both. Yeah. And I was told that I had to drink more. When, like I said, in the freshman and sophomore year, it's very calculated, and it still is in junior and senior year. It's always how many do we buy. It's important to distinguish. We don't want to have too many extra because that would be a waste of money, and we certainly don't want to have any less. Mm. So I went from saying, okay, I'll have a six-pack tonight. I'll have a six-pack tonight. Do that for a few months. And then suddenly I'm asking, can I have a six-pack? Can you get me two tall boys? You can you get me four more tall boys? Well, Just get me a 12-pack. When you see the progression alongside the tiredness and the – weird times drinking and drinking more, I think that culminates a perfect storm of saying something. Red flags. A red yeah. flag. Yeah. And this this is in the
0: spirit of our podcast, because our podcast touches on the spectrum right. of drinking. Yeah. And a lot of times, we we spend a lot of time over in this kind of extreme Definitely. area of where all the red flags and the problematic drinking are. But I would love to know your thoughts kind of in the other space. Right. You know, what about the normalization of it stands out for you? And if it does, and do you have any kind of thoughts and feelings around just how many people are drinking?
1: It doesn't have to be problematic, just in general. So I have friends who are perfectly happy and or I think they're perfectly happy, Mm -hmm. whoever now, but are living their best life, essentially doing everything they want to do and it really comes down to the language we use when we describe drinking and for high schoolers the language we use is in that other spectrum yes we use i want to binge drink tonight i had a buddy say that to me and i was like yeah interesting or let's get fucked up tonight (laughs) you got let's binge drink let's get fucked up dude i'm gonna black out tonight yeah like the language that we use we use languages of extremes it's a binge culture it's a binge culture Mm -hmm. the crazy thing is is that i was
2: like really bad in terms of my friend group, and I never said that stuff.
1: Really? Yeah.
2: Maybe, I, correct me if I'm wrong, friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the hey. the normalization is a fascinating thing, and it develops from how much you're drinking. And first, you start out sophomore year with a few, and then it develops into more, and the behavior of how people act. In the beginning, when you start drinking, when you're a kid, you just act like an idiot. And it progresses to a more what feels like mature level of drinking, a more socialized, a more social, a more refined <laughs> a taste, a gentleman <laughs> You drink like a gentleman. Pinot Grigio, right. please. <laughs> the, <laughs> the. But I think oh, what what we drink is interesting too, or mm-hmm. what we did drink because it starts with beer, and I went through a wine phase, um, and when I was hungover with the wine, my friends dubbed it the Pinot Flu. Mm-hmm. Um, if you it, makes s- it, it makes it more acceptable. When you joke yeah. about it... Especially when yeah. you're a doctor. Sure. <laughs> <Exactly. Yeah>. <laughs> 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 when you joke about it, it makes it normal. And it's very easy to brush off the issues when we joke about things. Yeah. Humor is a fantastic tool at mitigating real-world issues. <laughs> just the way it's always worked. Yeah. And We've been laughing through this whole mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. It's a super sensitive yeah. topic. The- Think about what you're drinking in high school. You start with light beer. Then you maybe do, no one drinks IPAs until later, because those are gross. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Start with light beer, and then maybe some kids will have wine. And where it gets tricky is where the liquor comes in. because so when you have the fellas driving to South Carolina, not only is the habitual drinking increasing, it's what we're actually consuming is increasing as well. And if you have a guy that only drinks liquor and only drinks wine, that might be another red flag. Can mm-hmm. you not just get drunk off a few beers? Like, no. do, you, do you need it to be that rapid? Mm-hmm. Um, pacing of drinking, I think is interesting. That can be a really good red flag. If you have a buddy who has a beer or two every hour, yeah, maybe that's appropriate drinking. Mm -hmm. If you had me that's going to a party, I'm having six in the first 30 minutes, right? If you can see the pace of how much they're going back to the case or how much they're walking Mm -hmm. around the ping pong table, that is a great indication, especially in the first 30 minutes of a of a party when, as the observer trying to look out for your friends, you won't be drunk yet. So that 30-minute time frame is a fantastic time to just observe. If you're concerned with a friend, just watch the first 30 minutes. (laughs) If they have one beer in 30 minutes, all right, maybe they're all right. Maybe keep an eye out. If you see them go back to that bag seven times, maybe that's when you start having a conversation. Um, And for me, what worked for me later, I know it didn't work in the moment, but one of my friends called me out on that. Um, is telling it's hard to decline going back to the bag. You can't mm-hmm. be like, "No, I didn't." Yeah, yeah, you it, did. I counted you. Watched you I'm drinking my beer, bro. Yeah, when you have someone that's <laughs> struggling with alcohol abuse, using concrete facts, I think, is the most helpful way. Saying you've changed is very easy to get defensive about. No, sure. I haven't. You walked to the bag seven times. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got yeah, it yeah, right here on this yeah, video. Yeah, I, <laughs> I videoed you doing it. Using concrete evidence of, okay, you're not only going to the bag seven times, but you're doing it with liquor, that's a deadly combination, right? Yeah. So I think those would be the two warning signs. And using concrete evidence that they can literally not dispute. Because an alcoholic's brain is very good at coming up with with excuses, right? It's very good at saying, well, I didn't do that. I did it because of this. I deserved it. So I think those would be the warning signs is pace of drinking and what you're drinking specifically in high school.
2: One thing that I just kind of want to add in here from a clinical perspective, if you do have, and this is for our listeners out there, if you do have somebody that you're really concerned about and you feel like their drinking is getting out of hand or potentially dangerous, please talk to a professional before attempting to intervene because sometimes some of those conversations can be – Damaging. Can can do more harm than good. Right. William Burleson, why do you care?
1: The suicide rates in the past 20 years of this country have skyrocketed, and they're only going to get worse if we don't start talking about it. If there's open, honest conversation and vulnerability, that's the way we're going to fix this problem. And without that, things are going to go bad. But I truly believe... That with enough honest conversation candid conversation when it's blunt and honest and real when you can be vulnerable and someone can relate to you that's when a suicidal brain really can be fixed essentially it was that moment i saw johnny staring at the wall yeah i want someone to look at me the same way i looked at johnny and say he's staring at the wall i'm staring at the wall he's suicidal i'm suicidal depression and suicide have a fascinating way of convincing you you're alone Mm -hmm. and when we can have conversations and convince people they aren't alone people are going to live and i think that's what it's all about
0: mm.
2: Dude, boom I, boom you know i i knew the day i met you a couple months ago um you know i i, I knew i kind of actually knew after our first conversation that this day was going to happen <laughs> um so, so thanks for being here. Hell <laughs> oh, yeah, um, thank you. For but having no, me. dude, it's it's been awesome getting to know you over the last few months and and getting to know your story in a more intimate way and being able to dive into semicolon <laughs> and share that with people. Um, I just I want to thank you, man, from the bottom of my heart. I, I I you know I wish I had the ability to to get to the point where you are when I was your age um, and had the level of maturity that I've seen in you. And the responsibility that you've taken on to share your experience with people. Um, I just, I'm really excited to see what your future holds, man. And, And I'm proud of you, dude.
1: Thank you, Patrick. That means a lot a blessing to be here, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity. So thank you all. You all are two great role models for me, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I'm going to look up to you all for the rest of my life. So thank you. We'll be here. Be careful. We'll be be here. We're still trying to figure it out, too. No, and I can't –
0: I mean, I would just repeat exactly what Patrick said. I mean, I've never met anyone like you, man. I I truly have not. Um, And if I have, they're 30 years older than you are. Uh, You're a wise one. And – It's amazing, and I uh, I thank you for coming on and sharing all of your story. Uh, I know that's not easy, even though you're 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 kind of making it your mission to do it. Um, But man, you're saving lives, so thank you, brother. One
2: one more thing before we jump: How do we get a hold of you? How do we, you know, tell tell us a little bit more, real quick, about semicolon? How how do we get there? What's going on with you? What are your plans for the next? You know, a couple years
1: in terms of where you want to go in terms of helping people. You can follow me on Instagram, (laughs) uh, William B. Burleson, um, and there. I don't post too much, but I'm writing a book um, this summer. I'm about a third of the way done with the book. Um, It's called Diet of Bread and Crackers, and that will probably be out in – who knows? But when it is out, you'll get a... you got to come back on. We'll, we'll oh, do yeah. a book, yeah. part of your book tour. Um. So Instagram there, William B. Burleson. I'll post the book updates, essentially. And to find the substack, the semicolon journey, just Google William Burleson substack, and it'll be the first thing that pops up.
0: William Burleson substack. Yes. Okay. Okay. Sweet. 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 The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit DilworthCenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit TheBlanchardInstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.